0: Well, good morning, church. Four of you are also having a good morning, and that's okay with me. Uh, We are so glad to worship with you. Uh, If you're joining us online or you're new here, uh, my name is Randy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Bible Church, and this morning I have the privilege of helping us walk through John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And as you open up your Bibles, you'll see that this is a narrative that happens at a wedding. And uh, weddings, as most of you know, and hopefully all of you would agree, are a time of celebration. Uh, they're a time that we get together with family, with friends, perhaps relatives we haven't seen in a long time, or friends we haven't seen uh, for years or decades, to join together to celebrate the union of a man and a woman. It is a time of tremendous celebration. There's nothing worse than at a wedding if something really embarrassing happens to the bride or to the groom. I speak from personal, personal experience. My wedding almost 10 years ago, uh, beaches of San Diego where my wife grew up and all of her family was in, beautiful sunset behind us, waves crashing, absolutely tremendous setting. We have this wonderful ceremony, we're excited, we're pronounced husband and wife and we move to the reception hall across the courtyard. As I sit down in the reception hall, I begin to think, you know, it's been cloudy, the weather's a little weird here, but I don't know why my legs feel so cold. You know, I'm like, it's, it's colder here, but for some reason, my legs in particular are really feeling this inclement weather. Well, after about two or three minutes, I uh, was horrified to discover something. I had a three or four inch rip in the seam of my pants at my wedding. Uh, And that was the cause for all of this uncomfortable feelings that I had had. Luckily, uh, there was a few people who were able to provide me with safety pins and I could MacGyver my pants back together and the celebration went on with few people except all of you now knowing that I ripped my pants at my wedding. Uh, Not even doing something cool like dancing, literally just walking. Uh, So... It was a tremendous, uh, had the potential to be tremendously embarrassing if I was easily embarrassed, but I'm not. So uh, I laughed about it uh, and then started to tell everybody that I knew. Uh, But here in John chapter 2, we are invited into this narrative uh, and this wedding is unfolding. Jesus here in the book of John begins his public ministry. And what we are welcomed into is a situation that would bring significantly more shame than a simple rip in some pants to this bride and specifically the bridegroom. And this morning, we get to see Jesus' response to this and what he has to teach us through his word as we read this narrative. Let's open up God's word, John chapter two, verses one through 11 and read. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to them or said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as we open up John and we're invited into the beginning of your ministry as you begin to work and teach and preach throughout the nation that we can come before you and step into this story as we are witnessing it, just as the servants and the disciples. Father, we pray that our hearts and our minds would be fixed on you, on the work that you're doing here, on the meaning that you're uh, proclaiming as you do this wonderful act. Father, we, this morning, want to submit ourselves to you, to lay our pride onto the side, our own uh, issues that we might have, and to come and ask that the Spirit would open up our minds and our hearts to receive your word and to apply it to our lives today. We thank you again for your words here that John has passed down to us, that they might be useful to us to teach us and to train us and to develop hearts that love you in response. Father, be with us this morning. Teach us, we pray. Amen. So what is happening here as Jesus' public ministry begins at this wedding? Very simply, we're told, the attendees and the location of this wedding. In the first two verses, there's a wedding. It's at Cana. If you want to see a map, Chuck put a map up last week. As promised, I will not put a map up. Uh, You can go uh, and see, but Cana is located just a short uh, while away from where they've been uh, walking around. We're told that the mother of Jesus was there. Now they don't give her name as Mary, just simply the mother of Jesus. And then we're also told that Jesus is there and his disciples have been invited as well. But quickly, their narrative points to the problem. Wine has run out, Mary begins to walk up and says, they're out of wine. To us today, if we're at a wedding, uh, we'd say, okay, that means people have had enough to drink. Not that big of a deal. Uh, but weddings in this time were much different. This wedding celebration was not a small matter. It could last upwards of a week. Never complain about a long wedding reception again. <laughs> you don't have to go to one that's a week long. The financial responsibility for this extravagant celebration lay with the groom. Seven days he must be providing uh, for this reception. To run out of food or drink would have been at the very least a tremendous embarrassment that would have brought the new couple, and specifically this bridegroom, great shame. There's even evidence that his in-laws could sue him as a result of them running out of wine. Not only could you be uh, starting your wedding off and your marriage off with shame, your father-in-law might be suing you. Not the ideal circumstances to start your marriage. This is what is at stake as Mary comes before Jesus and says, they have run out of wine. Nobody wants to be embarrassed at their wedding. Wedding should be a time of great celebration of what God has brought together. Mary sees this and wants to do something. She wants to avoid the shame that is coming to this couple. The fact that Mary seems to be working as a caterer and is working kind of behind the scenes at this wedding may even indicate that this couple is somehow a family friend of Mary and by extension then also Jesus. Mary wants to avoid the shame and I think Jesus does as well because this miracle, this sign, happens only behind the scenes. Very few people at this celebration witness what Jesus has done. So Mary's words to Jesus, although not making a specific request, in verse three, seek to bring his attention to a matter that she hopes he can fix. And in his answer to her and his actions with the uh, servants that are surrounding them, we see three things, three things uh, this morning that we will spend the rest of the time discussing. And they're this. First, Jesus is focused on his mission. Jesus is focused on his mission. Second, Jesus is announcing the start of something new. The start of something new. And third, and I think most significantly, the manifestation of God's glory results in greater trust in Jesus Christ. When God's glory is manifested, the result is greater trust in Jesus. So Jesus is focused on his mission. Where do we see that? Let's go to verse four. Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? We read this, and if you're like me, when you're growing up and you first read this, you thought it gave you license to call your mom woman. And then you quickly learned that calling a mother or any woman woman was a quick route to having a discussion with your father uh, about what you had just said to your mom. Uh, we read this then, and we see it as kind of odd. Like, Jesus, that's, this is your mother. She gave birth to you. Like she was chosen by God to bear you. And you're calling her woman? This seems harsh. And so we try to explain it away, but we do have to see something here. Jesus is rebuking his mom. He is rebuking her for asking of something something of him uh, that he says, my time has not come yet. But where we translate this in English, woman, what does this have to do with me? We could perhaps translate it something softer, uh, along the lines of, ma'am, why are you involving me in this? What does this really have to do with me? He's not necessarily uh, talking down to her, but he is rebuking her. And he says, why? My time has not yet come. So what does this mean? And how does this point us to the idea that Jesus is on mission? Jesus is announcing to his mother when he says, my time has not yet come. That is not yet time for me to display the fullness of my glory. In the Gospels, and specifically in John, when Jesus talks about his time, he's often referring to his death, which is going to be the greatest example of who he is and what he's come to do. He's come to die, and on the cross, the fullness of his glory begins to be revealed as he is the savior of mankind. And so he's right to tell his mother, it's not yet time for me to display my glory in this miraculous way. He's also putting distance between him and his mom. When he says woman, and John doesn't refer to her as Mary, we see a distance coming between mother and child. No longer will the family be what drives Jesus, care for his mom or his siblings, what is going to be his guide star, where his direction is headed, is determined only by the heavenly Father's will for his life. This is what is going to determine what he does and is going to be revealed as the purpose of his coming. And so he's telling his mom, it's not yet time for me to reveal fully who I am. This distancing must certainly have been hard for Mary. As a mother, she had born him. She had taught him how to walk, talk. She had nursed him as a young child. She had maybe even come to rely on him as some type of provider if, as many people believe, Joseph passed away sometime between uh, Jesus' childhood and now with his public ministry. Mary is feeling this distancing and this tension in her role as mother to Jesus. He is announcing to her everything secondary to the will of God, even you, my mother. God is first, And we see this because there's different concerns. Jesus never appears to be concerned about the lack of wine at the wedding. D.A. Carson in his commentary notes that Mary wants the wedding to end without embarrassment, but Jesus is concerned about the revealing of his mission and his time. Jesus remembers that the prophets characterized the Messianic age as a time when wine would be in abundance. You can go to Amos 9 to see this so here he's treating these circumstances that are developing as a type of acted parable. And he's right to say that the time of great wine or the messianic age, the hour of my glorification, has not yet come. But Mary's response is telling to us. Jesus rebukes her. She takes the rebuke. She turns to the servants and says what? Do whatever he says. She doesn't seem Uh, deterred by this response from Jesus. She believes that he will do something about the issue at hand and prevent shame from coming to this bridegroom. Carson goes on to put it this way. Mary approaches as his mother, is reproached, but she responds as a believer, and her faith is honored. She trusts that Jesus will do something. She trusts that he is more than just a son. And she is learning as this distance is developing between her and her son Jesus that she no longer is going to be able to approach him as, a, as her child, but she is going to learn to approach him as her savior. So we move to the second point here. This messianic age that Jesus is bringing, the start of something new. What happens? Verse six, Jesus is beginning to turn his attention to these servants, but before he actually speaks to them, we're told a few small details. They're six stone water jars. They're there for the Jewish rites of purification, and they each hold 20 to 30 gallons. I believe that if these jars were insignificant, then John would have omitted this detail. There were some large pots. Jesus filled them or had them filled, and then water turns into wine. End of story. But John here starts to include some background about these pots that Jesus is going to use uh, to turn the water to wine and to perform this first sign in the book of John. These jars hold a specific purpose, ritual cleaning and purification, and they also have a specific size, upwards of 180 gallons. There is something happening here when he uses these things that are supposed to be used for ritual cleaning, and he's using something that proves what he's creating, he is creating in abundance. This is not a couple bottles of wine that Jesus has made. This is 180 gallons. That is a lot of wine that Jesus produces for this wedding. And so the servants are told to fill these jars, and they do so to the absolute brim. Jesus instructs them, pull out the water, they take the water to the master of the feast, and we see that sometime between when the jars are filled to the brim and the servants dip in the ladle or whatever they've used to pull the wine out of these jars, Jesus has caused this water to be transformed into wine, and the result is the master of the feast sips this wine and says, this is the best wine that we've had yet. This wine surpasses all the other wine, and he grabs the bridegroom and says, other people serve good wine first and the bad wine later, but you have saved the best for last. The groom would not face embarrassment or even potential lawsuits that would have resulted from this depleted wine supply. Jesus has stepped in and done a great sign. This tells us two things. First, what Jesus has done is produce real, authentic wine. This is not grape juice. Jesus has made something that is wine that when the master of the feast tastes it, he recognizes it as wine. Jesus is making something that usually takes a really long time to ferment and to grow in an instant. This dwindling supply of wine is no longer. There is now an abundance, and it's the choicest wine at that But then we're left with the question, still, what is the meaning of all of this? And this is what the second thing that this part and this interaction with the servants shows us. The included detail regarding the purpose of the pots points us towards the symbolic meaning of Jesus' sign here. The stone pots were there for the purpose of ritual cleaning according to the law. They represented the old, the law, and the customs of Judaism for which Jesus was about to replace with something much greater. He's about to do a great work in his mission. If the interaction with Jesus' mother then first reveals us the seriousness of his commitment to God's mission, this water to wine begins to reveal to us the aspect and outcome of his mission. The old is giving way to the new. Kostenberger in his commentary writes this very simply and clearly. Jesus here is shown to fill up the depleted resources of Judaism. The pots were empty, symbolizing the law had left people empty. But what Jesus was going to provide was something far greater than they had ever tasted before, and he was going to provide it in In abundance, only in Christ can the old give way to something new that is superior in every single way. John had opened us, opened up in chapter 1, hinting at this. Verse 16 and 17, what did he say? For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. D.A. Carson concludes his section here, by noting that John's point is simply that the wine that Jesus provides is unqualifiably superior, as everything must be that is tied to this new age Jesus is introducing. He is using something that had no purpose anymore, empty pots that were used for purification, and using it to point to the new age that he was about to begin, this messianic age where God would give some real lasting relief. The law of Moses could only point towards uh, temporary relief. It offered no solutions for a burdened conscience permanently. Constantly people returning to the sacrifices and these rules and regulations. But permanent relief would soon be found in the new covenant that would be established through Jesus' blood. No longer would they have to turn back to these things that had left them empty time and time Again. It's what caused a great missionary named C.T. Studd to live a life of costly missionary service in which he said this, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. When we see this water being transformed to wine, it's not just Jesus saving the day at this wedding so that the celebration can continue and there's no shame for this bridegroom, he's pointing us towards something symbolic, something saying there is a new thing coming, and it's only going to come through the full revelation of who I am, which will be on the cross. And on that cross, as C.T. Studd notes, Jesus gave it all, and so in response, how can I hold on to anything in return? Bruce Milne writes this in his commentary, this miracle, turning water to wine, can happen again as the water of guilt, habitual failure, and legalism is transformed by the word of the risen Jesus into the wine of forgiveness, victory, and joyful obedience. Jesus had come to take away the old and to give way and give people something much better. This should breathe life into our lungs, that we're no longer subject to what we can do with our own abilities, We don't have to perform all the commands and rituals to have our standing before God. We have it through Jesus Christ and we have it as a form of permanent relief. Jesus came and died once and for all. Not to crush us, but to set us free. He doesn't just churn some water to wine here, he takes what is empty and he turns it into an abundance. He offers for us to take the kingdom, to not trust in our own strivings, but to trust in the life and work of Christ for our salvation and continued sanctification. This is what he's inviting us to as we see this story play out in John. But how often is our status before God not based on the work of Christ, but somehow in our minds, it begins to be based off our own strivings. We know Jesus saved me, but now I need to prove that I'm worthy of his salvation, or I need to work harder to earn what Jesus has done for me. And so we don't let in our hearts the spirit of God reign, or in our minds, and instead we begin to submit to a spirit of legalism or judgmentalism based on the idea that if we simply do better, God will reward us more, that we must... Earn our way to God. We must prove that we are worthy of the gift that he has given to us. But when we start to do this, we start to breed contempt in our lives, maybe for ourselves, to say, how can God love me? Start to breed contempt in others. I mean, you say, how could they disrespect other people? How could they be such a poor Christian? XYZ, fill in the dots with whatever attitude that we begin to breed in our hearts when we start to look and trust in our own strivings rather than in Christ, and we start to feel crushed and we burden our conscience, we miss out on that joyful obedience because we have trusted once again in our own work, which can only produce guilt, habitual failure, and legalism. Christ offers something more, and John wants us to see it to taste it, and to have it. So if John's point in this story is that what Jesus provides is better, we can't forget the broader sense in which he's recorded these signs in the gospel. John 20 tells us this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. On a much broader sense, John is including this sign, not just to point us towards the new that Jesus is showing us, but that people might see it, read it, hear it, and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And indeed, this is what happens. Verse 11, what is the result of this uh, sign, this work, this wonder that Jesus had done? John tells us this is his first sign that he did at Canaan and Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Great wine has been produced, shame for the bridegroom has been spared, but the true result of the story is that the disciples saw and they believed. It's the final point this morning. The manifestation of God's glory results in greater trust in Jesus Christ. This genuine act of God is displayed in his own authority over creation to cause the water to become wine results in his glory being shown and the belief in his disciples to grow. Augustine points out that this sign is revealing the same person who makes water to turn into wine at the wedding is the same one who does the same uh, in the vine every year. He simply expedited the process. It's no less miraculous that clouds show up in the sky, it rains down, the ground soaks up the water, vines grow, grapes ferment and, you know, years later, 20, 30 years, or if you're not that snobby like, you know, 18 months, uh, he, wine happens. Right? You drink it and you enjoy what God has done. It's an amazing process. Jesus is Lord over creation and he has an ability to command to do it what he wants, whether it takes a significant amount of time or a moment's notice, Jesus is the Lord. And the response when we see the Lordship of Jesus, when we see a genuine act of God is always faith. When God works in our hearts, it produces faith. We can't produce faith on our own. A genuine act of God happens, we are regenerated and we respond in faith. God's actions produce faith. Seeing Jesus' command over creation, this genuine act of God has caused the disciples to respond with faith. F.F. Bruce says this as we conclude this morning. Jesus, in the book of John, refers to his miracles not as signs but as his works. And we are reminded that the work of God produces faith. John then invites us to look on Jesus, his command over creation, and to see the glory of God shine in the Son of God Jesus Christ, and to place our faith in him alone. That's what we are invited to do this morning. As we read the story of this wedding, of the water being turned into wine, it's not to marvel at God, it's not to say, man, what a lucky groom to avoid that shame, or start to say, I wonder what that wine tasted like if it was really that good. No, it's to see the work of God and to see the glory of him shine through his son Jesus Christ and to respond in faith. To see the glory of God shine through the through Jesus is what is happening here at Cana. As we read it it's so easy to just blow past this and say, "Man, that's a great miraculous sign. Jesus is lord over creation." and move on. But this morning God as we read his word calls us to say, "See and have faith." for Jesus is the answer. He has brought something new. You don't need to trust in your own strivings, you can trust in him. So some questions for personal application this morning. First, do you see faith in Christ as something to earn or prove yourself worthy of? How does the empty pots of the law being used to bring out the abundance of Christ challenge a mentality of earning as a means of salvation? Two, do you trust in Jesus, who is God, the ruler of creation, and savior of the world? And finally, do you obey God out of a joyful response to what he has done? How might the words of Milne that I quoted, this miracle can happen again as the water of guilt habitual failure, and legalism be transformed by the word of the risen Jesus into the wine of forgiveness, victory, and joyful obedience challenge the way we view ourselves? Do we see ourselves taking part in the abundance of Christ, or do we see ourselves as habitual failures trapped by guilt or legalism? Christ invites us to taste and see and have something so much greater.